Hello and welcome to Series 4 of the 90s Club Footy Podcast. This season promises to be one of the very best, with a host of big names jumping on for a chat. This week is Episode 31 of the podcast, and our guest is Carlton champion Anthony Kudafidis. Affectionately known as Kuda, Anthony spent 15 seasons in the Navy Blue, playing 278 games. He was renowned for his versatility and considered one of the most athletic players to have ever played the game. One of Anthony's greatest moments came in 1995, being a part of the Premiership team. In this episode, Anthony talks about choosing football over athletics, how he had to earn his position in the team, the 1995 Premiership win, Carlton's troubles in the early 2000s, and life after football. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Anthony Kudafidis. Anthony Kudafidis, thank you for joining me on the 90s Club Footy Podcast, mate. Great to catch up with you and, uh, and connect. Thanks, Trent. I appreciate the invite. Really looking forward to getting into the footy chat with you. Um, before we do, what's Anthony Kudafidis doing with himself, I guess, post-football? Yeah, I do uh, Herbalife. And so, I, uh, you know, with Kudafit, I've just started back up at my fit clubs now. And uh, we didn't do them for the last couple of years, but I, I grew an enormous amount of fit clubs back uh Back in uh, 2013, 14, 15, we, we grew across uh, Victoria, New, New South Wales, uh, South Australia. We had quite a few around, so it was good. We built communities and helped people get healthy and happier. And that's what I've done, Trent, because when I finished footy, when I was really lost in life, I had to find something with love and passion again. And I got really unwell myself health-wise in 2010. And uh, for a good year, I was really concerned with my health. And I found these products called Herbalife, and uh, I was a real skeptic, believe me, But because uh, I tried a lot of products before that. But they changed my life within six days and had a major impact on me. And so I started doing the business part-time as I was working for a car finance company. Car finance company I wasn't overly enthused about, uh, and the Herbalife business I really wasn't. So we have some nutrition clubs now in our organization. We've got fit clubs. Yeah, we, we have a variety of ways of doing the business. And uh, yeah, I started part-time to eventually now doing it full-time, but when I say full-time, I still have the luxury to be able to do my sports talks or if I get invited, like, for example, Dancing with the Stars, I can just go, yep, I'm doing it. I don't have a boss to report to. So it's been great fun for me. And, of course, spending time with the family, which is really important for me also. Oh, fantastic, mate. Now, tell me, just Dancing with the Stars, uh, before we get into the footy talk, uh, it seems like you really enjoyed it. Did you enter Dancing with the Stars being an okay dancer, turning into a very good dancer, or did you always have a few moves under your belt, mate? Uh, the only moves I had back in the old days was, of course, in the nightclub being under the influence of alcohol and a couple of times on the podium, uh, but they're very weary to get out on the dance floor back then unless I had to really be drunk and then uh, dance off the alcohol. But I got asked in 2006, in all honesty, and uh, I uh, didn't know anything about dancing. Or oh, at the back of my head, I was always like, man, some of these guys can really dance. I wish I knew how to. And then I got asked to go on the show and uh, – I asked mum, she said, that's my favourite show. I said, okay, I'll do it for you. And uh, I went on there. I started, I was, I was terrible, Trent. I had no idea what it was about. I didn't know there was posture. I didn't know the steps. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know anything about dancing, but I slowly learned. And then over time, I just got a little bit better week by week. I think my uh, wife described me as being atrocious. And uh, week by week, I, you know, I somehow got through. I was in the bottom two back in 2006 series. Uh, I was in the bottom two five times out of the 10 weeks. So I was like on the edge of I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I just kept hanging in there. 
Chris Hemsworth was on my series back then and who's gone on to become an absolute superstar. Had Andrew Gaze, who's an unbelievable guy, Tams on the list. Just some great people. And, uh, yeah, I was lucky to win. And then last year, yeah, I, I got a phone call. My hip was terrible all year. I hadn't been running. I uh, just started to feel better. And I, I think I did my first run around for about, it was three minutes. So one minute on, one minute off, one minute on, three minutes of it. And then uh, the phone call came not not long after. And I was like, oh, my hip's just slowly, slightly better now. And I agreed to do it again. And uh, I'm glad I did. I didn't do as well. I got to the semifinals. There were six in the grand finals. So I was definitely not in the top six. But I had a great time, man. It was so, such a – I'm glad I did it. Ah, uh, fantastic, mate. Great life experience and uh, another uh, – yeah, something to, uh, to throw under the, the CV. Kuda, let's talk some footy, mates. Uh, really interested on how your journey began with Carlton because I know you had a really strong athletics background. So how did uh, it all start with uh, the Blues? Yeah, I was a man Collingwood supporter, but I lived in the Carlton zone trend. So before the draft days, Carlton must have been out there maybe trying to sign up as many kids as they could before they weren't allowed to do it anymore and lived out in the Layla Thomas area, area was the Carlton zone. And so at the age of 14, I got a letter to go down and try out at their uh, junior development squad. And so what happened was we turned up, there was probably like 120 kids and every week they eliminated 20. And if you were good enough to be in the top, I think it was 25, maybe 30, I dare say 25, then you played off in a carnival during the school holidays against all the other AFL clubs back then. And uh, so I played two years under 15s. So I both had the same coach both times, Luke Sulos, and I just played a fullback. I, uh, and as a junior, I was I played basically in the ruck because I had that, I was Australian champion high jumper therefore at one stage, so I could really jump and uh, I could pretty just pretty much jump over everyone uh, in the in the ruck, no matter even if they were taller than me. And uh, so two years under 15, so I then made the Victorian um, team, which I, I was emergency quite a few times or on the bench until the last two games, uh, the two big games against South Australia and Western Australia. They put me in the ruck and I somehow played really well. I don't know how. I, I, I rucked against Glenn Jakovic back then from WA. He was a man mountain. I could jump over him. And then um, Carlton, uh, you know, uh, invited me down the under-19s at Carlton. And uh, it, was, it was through hesitation. I had to give away my beloved Lola Football Club because I loved it there. I had some bonded with some great friends. And uh, I just loved jumping on the bike, you know, riding to the football club and uh, having a great time there, going to the fish and chip shop afterwards and with mates and then riding home in the dark. And we just had the best time. And we went the, when Australia was Australian, we had freedom. We could do whatever, you know, you wanted to do. And, of course, we behaved. But it was just a wonderful time. But then I, you know, I had that dream trend. Either I wanted to be represent Australia at the Olympics or become an AFL footballer. So I had to give away Lalo. And my brother was at the current 19s. I had quite a few friends there. We had a an area, Lalo Thomas, had, had phenomenal sports people. And because of that, I had a good bunch of mates that were in the under-19s. And so we had the Northern Zone, the under-19s. We had the Eastern Zones and... Uh, and we became really good friends there. And so I played two years under-19s and made the Till Cup team. I uh, made the All-Australian team at centre-half back. Glenn Jacobs and uh, Gavin Wanganeen were the two, like, standouts of the carnival that were really renowned as uh, the superstars. And uh, then from there, Carlton offered me my contract. So that was the year I gave away um, athletics for the first time. So I started footy at the age of eight in the winter and started athletics at the age of eight in the summer and went all the way through uh, summer athletics, winter footy. Carlton were trying to convince me to stop doing athletics uh, in the summer and take up footy full time. I was like, no way. I loved it. You know, I became a strange champion high jumper. Tim Forsyth beat me towards the end there. He was a phenomenal high jumper who went on to re- uh, win a bronze medal at, uh, I think it was at the Lanth Olympic Games, the one before that. 
with second best junior high jump in the world. I had the Australian record for the 110 meter hurdles title. I won so many multi events, which events which was like decathlon. So I potentially could have been either hurdler or maybe decathlete, uh, you know, representing Australia. But I chose the right sport in footy. Smart, who will draw Kunafidis to him over the top to Ben Hunt. I wonder if he knows he's got the athlete chasing him. The pressure will be on now. I played Ben Hunt under pressure, but kicks it out of the ball. Well, pretty optimistic, Bruce, going for a bounce there, Hart, with uh, Kudafidis breathing down his neck. No doubt a hard decision to make because obviously that love of athletics. What was it that just got football over the line? I knew athletics was going to be tough. You know, there's a few few athletes that, you know, got caught drug tested and that too. And it was always in the back of my head, you know, are they all on drugs or, you know, what is it with athletics? It's a bit of a lonely sport, but I probably, in hindsight, maybe loved athletics a little bit more. But that team team thing about footy, the good thing about athletics, I always say this is that we start here and we finish here. And if we jump higher than that next person, you win. So it's like, it's an obvious one. With the team sport, it's a little bit of judgment, you know. I think he's better. I think that person over there is better. Maybe that guy doesn't quite suit my game style or whatever. But footy to me growing up was um, iconic. It was a religion here in Melbourne. I looked at the players like they were gladiators and really admired them as role models too. And so out of the two sports, athletics was big back then. It's died off dramatically now. But I think footy was just that little bit more, you know, uh, being recognised. And I felt like I had a bit more of an opportunity maybe to make it um, as an AFL player more so than an athlete, because I know as an athlete, you've got to be world best uh, in order to get looked after financially. And so Carlton offered me a three-year contract. And so I didn't really hesitate. I sort of knew this was the way that I had to do as much as I was reluctant to give away athletics. It was just became that, you know, that point, you know, that uh, intersection was like, which way do I go? And I had to choose. And so I chose footy. I mean, Carlton offered me $7,800 in 1991. It was the same contract in 92 and 93, but it wasn't about the money. It was about me living my, uh, you know, trying to achieve my goal of playing AFL footy. And you did that, mate. And I know just reading, uh, doing a little bit of research before our chat, um, I think you might have played 50-odd games in the reserves before getting your chance at senior level. Do you feel that lengthy apprenticeship, I guess, in the reserves competition really helped you adapt to AFL footy? I wasn't happy, Trent. I wasn't happy. I played 30, <laughs> yeah. I played 36 or 38 under-19s games also. Uh, then in 91, I was on the list. I didn't get a game. In 92, I played six games. I think I was emergency maybe six or seven times. I know at the end of 91 season, I uh, I thought, gee, if I want to make footy, I'm going to have to like do something a little bit more special. I hit the weights and put on quite a bit of size, but that affected my endurance running. So in the reserves, they played me a fullback, and I think I pretty much beat everyone that year. I, I'm pretty sure. Like It's a long time to remember, but I won the uh, reserves best and fairest, but I was emergency six or seven times. In 93, I played eight games. So uh, I watched the boys play off in a grand final while I was emergency. And, uh, you know, I was really disappointed because I, I felt like, you know, I could have done, not, not to say get them over the line because they got thrashed, but could have maybe, you know, made a little bit of a difference uh, in the team, being so versatile. And then 94, I played the first half of the season. Then I got dropped for two weeks. And uh, I went to see a sports psychologist. His name was Anthony Stewart. He changed my life. And, uh, you know, he told me these words, I can, or will you just watch me? And I highlighted them in my diary every day. And then two weeks later, the club picked me again on the wing and I never looked back from that moment. So I I was almost in the best plays every week uh, all the way through until probably the second final when we got eliminated. But, uh, you know, I had a phenomenal finish to that 94 season. It was just in time for the greatest, you know, year of my life, 1995, when, you know, we won the premiership. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. But 
it was a very slow start trend. So I was on and off, you know, like I was in sometimes out of the team and all up, yeah, 50 games, mate. It was a, it was a long um, apprenticeship and, uh, you know, did I deserve that? Did I not? Uh, that That's debatable. In hindsight, I think if maybe, you know, you know, maybe the coaches just wrapped their arms around me and said, this is exactly the way I want you to play and do this, you know, a training, I, I reckon I could have uh, matured and, you know, played a lot more senior games early on. Kuda, back in those days, speaking to a lot of guests that I've, uh, I've had on the podcast, and we speak about just, I guess, the player-coach um, discussions and feedback and so forth. What was it like back then? Obviously, did you feel that, you know, you, you probably could have got in a little bit earlier? And was there some discussions there with the coaching staff on things that you needed to work on to try and, I guess, get yourself into that side? Rod Ashman was my reserves coach and I loved him. I just thought he was such a great man. And, uh, you know, he put his arm around me and I think I played good footy under him and that also. Yeah, he was a great role model, Ashy. And uh, Dora as a teammate was good too because he would push me along. But in terms of the other coaches, I never got any – I didn't get a lot of positive feedback. It was always negative stuff. And uh, anytime there was extra sessions, I was always highlighted to do the extra stuff and it was hard. It was tough and hard. And it was good because, look, I had to grow up anyway. I'm not saying – I wasn't perfect. I had a lot of faults coming into the club. I was probably a little bit gifted that I didn't really understand – the full extent of training hard and getting the you know the maximum out of myself. Everything came maybe a little bit too easy for me. Somehow I got through the system probably because I was so athletic. So I had to learn, uh, but I don't think Parker really understood you know me, and we probably didn't see eye to eye early on. And I love him now. And uh, you know, in some ways, you, you know, you look back and go, lucky maybe lucky he was like that. I'm not. I'm not sure, but. I guess if he had have grabbed me and just maybe taught me a little bit more and if I understood what he wanted from me, maybe my life would have been a bit easier as a footballer. You know, and I remember one game, I've spoken about it in an open mic, and I don't want to always you know, talk about Parker because he's a great man. But I remember one game against North Melbourne, I, was, I started on the bench, Andrew McKay came off with the blood rule, and I literally ran on the ground and the runner came to me a minute later, like just as soon as I ran on, he's like, Kuda, Parker wants to know if you want to play today. And I just like, if I could dig a hole and bury myself right there, I would have. And I was almost like emotional because in my head, I'm like, but like, what does he want from me? You know what I mean? Like whatever he wants, I will do. But if I don't know what he wants, I looked laconic. You know what I mean? It was that way style of play. I always did. It looked like I wasn't trying at training, but my heart rate was at 180 beats per minute. And then I was, I was off basically on the bench after that. And uh, I didn't play for the rest of the game. So you can imagine, Trent, like mentally how I felt. It, it wasn't easy. And I think as a young kid, I don't think many footballers would get treated like that nowadays. It was a little bit different back then. I'm not, you know, being a sook or anything. I'm just explaining to you the way that I felt mm. back then. So it was very hard. And I was a bit unsure of where my place was in that team. Now, if I was at another club, maybe another coach might have said, mate, look at the talent that we have here. I, I don't know. But all I know is that when Wayne Britton came and Barry Mitchell then came back as a you know as a coach and even after Barry um, uh, retired from footy, he would still call me every weekend to tell me what to do. But Wayne Britton grabbed me and just said, you know, look at the, look look what we got here. Basically, he said to Pogo, look what we've got here and this is what we can do with him, you know. And uh, those two there really had a major impact in my career and uh, changed a lot of things for me. Kick by Fletcher up towards half forward by G. He has been sensational in the last quarter. Kuda Fides, that is six marks. And coming up for his eighth kick in this last quarter. Well, he's been saying to the coaching panel for two years he wants to play in the midfield. 
They've let him loose when it counts most. So you spoke about Cooter about that terrific '94 season after you know being uh, you know missing out in a couple of games and really finishing the season strong. '95 was memorable for for a number of reasons. I think obviously the premiership, no doubt, with uh, you know 20 of your great mates, but also that All Australian selection as well. So I guess you spoke about that discussion you had with uh, you know one of the club staffers about you know mindset and so forth. Was there anything else that just made it click for you that season and the team? It was Anthony Stewart, no doubt, because I went to see him and he taught me those words. And I think because my days weren't very structured, and I try to teach my kids these, this way also, but he made me buy a diary and every day he was like, write everything you're going to do throughout the day, otherwise the, otherwise the day just goes and you don't achieve anything. And I didn't really understand that, I'm a bit immature. And so I started to do that, started to achieve more throughout the day, started to make phone calls, I did things I didn't want to do. So he got me out of my comfort zone and... Uh, and that started it. And, uh, you know, I used to go to training with a focus, whether it was marking, kicking or whatever it was, and went there early and uh, finished later and, and made the, my game quickly change. And all of a sudden, playing on the wing in a position where I could thrive a little bit more instead of like having these roles that I didn't enjoy and I could just go out there and play footy. I think then Parco started to realise, oh, okay, look what we've got here. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, kick at the Cuda one-on-one. If you see him, just kick the ball out there. Boys move away, you know, like more than likely – if you don't mark the ball gets on the ground, you know, it was a, it was a good uh, target for for the club and also being so versatile when they needed me up forward or in defence or anywhere else, I was capable of doing that as well, even in the ruck. And so that's how it started. It was really Anthony Shaw. And Anthony Shaw got employed by the club the next year in 95 and he no doubt had a big impact on us winning that premiership also. And so, uh, you know, after that, look, and you know David Parkin, who's a terrific, terrific guy. And I think when I lost my father in '98, he was probably my biggest supporter. Also, so the good and the bad. You know, he probably didn't like that I was a little bit lazy, looked maybe a bit laconic, uh, maybe thought I was a bit of a smartass. I don't know because I never really said too much. Uh, but then by the, by the end of it, uh, you know, I, I got to understand him, and uh, you know, I, I I love seeing him now. In all honesty, Trent, I, I really do. Kuda, tell me about grand final day. You know, you guys had a dominant season. Um, you entered against the Cats as favourites, no doubt. And then from quarter time, you guys just ran away with it. Like, what a special day. Yeah, not 94, Trent. It's funny because in 94, with um, we, we thrashed West Coast who went on to win the premiership in round 20. We beat them by about 11 goals, I think it was, at Princess Park. We then played Richmond, I, th- I think. We thrashed them. And then the last game... So we were sitting on top, I think, at that stage. And then the last game we played against Essendon, who beat us in the grand final the week before, and these whims didn't play. We lost that game, so we finished second. So then we played, back then the system was first play eighth, second play seventh. So we played Melbourne, who was seventh on the ladder, and we lost to Melbourne. Then we played Geelong, who had four of their star players out the next week, and we went, we bombed, we got thrashed. And so we went out in straight sets. So in 95, they were saying that we were too old and too slow. Then we only lost two games for the entire year to the two bottom teams. So work that one out. We, we still don't know to this day how that happened, but we did. But we went into the grand final trend. As far as I know, Geelong were favourites. I don't know how. When, when you're thinking that we, you know, we only lost two games for the entire year, we thrashed North Melbourne in the prelim final. We just got over the line against Brisbane Bears, in honesty, in the first week of the yeah. finals before they were Brisbane Lions. That were, they were, they were, was a hard test for us that day. And then the week of the grand finals, one of the most amazing experiences of my life, you know, even training, like we ran out Thursday night, there might have been a thousand, two, three, four, five, I don't know how many, it felt like the stadium was full and, you know, we ran out of the um, um, 
players race and like the, the the supporters just went absolutely crazy and you just find another level that night at training and that was wonderful and the car parade around the city how do you describe that with all the you know the fans cheering I don't think it has the same atmosphere or impact anymore of what it did back then that was like uh, it was it was incredible. Like that's when it was the real religion of you know Melbourne. Everyone followed AFL. I think the new people that come into this city probably don't appreciate AFL. It's probably not the same spectacle as what it was back then. But even having migrant parents, everyone just knew uh, AFL AFL footy back then. And so that was a great experience in the car with um, Ange Christen, my good mate, and Peter Dean. And Peter Dean, he said it was like going in the car with the Beatles because uh, you know we, our popularity was a little bit crazy back then and. Uh, and then come Grand Final Day, I know the night before, could you imagine back then white pages, Cuda Fides in the white pages that week of the Grand Final, our phone at home didn't stop ringing and uh, we had to leave it off the hook. As soon as you put on or someone was ringing, no matter who it was, and so we had to change our number there. My uh, mates from Layla Football Club came over the night before and I don't like seeing anyone the night before a game. I like to just be left alone and so Dad had to go, get away, get away, leave him alone. <laughs> He's not at home but I was hiding in the bedroom. And then come grand final day, I think I, I, I think I uh, overdid it in terms of nerves. Lucky I had a larrigan mate in Ange Christo who just settled me down. Mill Hannah was like our role model. Uh, Mill and he just, you know, spoke to us before the game, you know, to settle our nerves and that as well. We just uh, idolised Mill. He was a, just a, a great man. And um, yeah, we went out there. Quarter time, convincingly, half time, Ange had the ball at half time, and the siren went, that thug Billy Brownless tackled him on the ground. They started a all in brawl, and even Barry Stone, I think he had a broken leg, he came in and threw his crowd. I don't know. Anyway, it was just, it was funny. And then you still don't think you're going to win, Trent. Like you get in half time, I was exhausted because I ended up at the bottom of that pack and I was exhausted. I had a great first half. I was a little bit quieter in the third quarter. Greg Williams, he, he, never, he never moved out of the square. And this particular day, he could sniff goals. So he went down the four line, kicked five, had 31 like crazy. But the last quarter, Trent, I couldn't believe it because I'm standing there in the middle of the MCG. I'm looking around 90,000 people. I'm like, I'm about to be a premiership player here. I could not believe it because as a young kid, that was the, the greatest day on the calendar for me that last Saturday of September. But I never expected myself to be out there playing. And mate, what a feeling it was. And uh, we celebrated for many weeks. And still to this day, Trent, I'll be honest, mate, it was the greatest day of my life. Uh, you know, I've got married, I've had the kids, you know, and I love them. And you never, of course, it'd be, you know, silly, you know, to even consider what. But in terms of how I felt, you know, all the years of all that pain and ups and downs I went through and the unsureness of whether, whether I'd ever be a senior player and cement myself, and mate, it was, all, it was all worth it for this one day uh, in September. And now, yeah, I can take that with me forever. And I know, like, even my parents, uh, you know, migrated here and I never expected, I'm sure, you know, what was getting bus. Um, there was two people that stood outside the players bus as we went to the function. It was my mum and dad. I just said to the boys, can you please wave to them? And they were just like little kids, man. They were just, you know, on top of the world. <laughs> and they didn't have family here in Australia, but they had the Carlton Football Club. And that's how I felt like the Carlton Football Club was. It was just an the mid-90s, do you think we were seeing a different type of footballer coming into the game? And I'll probably speak more mm. of your midfielders. Like, I look at yourself, you know, who is, who is able to play multiple positions. But I think, you know, from my mind, I still reckon you best played your best footy on the ball, whether it was on the wing or in the, in the pivot. Um, we'll see more mobile-type midfielders coming into the game in comparison to the likes of, I guess, your Greg Williams and your Paul Couches and your Dean Kemps and Nathan Burks, who probably are a little bit different. 
Um, but do you think we sort of start seeing a bit of a type of different, different type of football or as I guess the 90s were starting to evolve? Yeah, no doubt they started switching for athletes, Trent. And uh, I think that was a little bit my fault. I may have ruined the game. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I did play my best footy on the ball. I mean, I, on the wing, I played great footy. Don't get me wrong. But I always wonder and look back and think, if I wasn't so versatile and I could was just solely played in the midfield like some of these other greats, like what maybe I could have achieved if I was just let alone left alone in there to be able to play every single week. And, you know, you get comparisons to some of the players in that as well. My career started very slowly. And uh, I know in, in the past, they, you know, look at, you know, current day players can be like Cuda and have a look at the stats and he's way ahead of Cuda and look what Cuda achieved later on in his career. But, you know, I played all over the ground. And that means defence, I played a back pocket, full back, centre back, half back, on the wing, in the middle, like every, even in the ruck, like I played in every position. But, I was the first maybe six foot three player to come into the middle and then have gone, oh, you know, look look what he's capable of doing here, bigger body kind of midfielder who's able to get the ball out of the middle and uh, get a few clearances going. And then, of course, the likes of Adam Good started to get in there. Uh, yeah, Matthew Pavlidge has started getting in there. Now, mate, you've got Cripper who's even taller. Yeah. And just, you know, it's gone to another level. But I know Sam Mitchell wrote in his book that, the recruiters were looking for, in particular, year 2000 when I was absolutely flying, were looking for, for more, you know, athletes more so than just footballers like himself that had the football brain like your Greg Williams's. But he went on to prove them wrong, and you can always prove recruiters wrong. But he was certainly held back because, you know, they were looking for more athletic players like myself that was versatile. And now you get a lot of them in the game, don't you, now? And um, uh, even, you know, Nat Fife, who I've been compared to quite a bit as well, who's incredible both, you know, midfield, up forward and can take a mark and stuff like that. So, yeah, the game changed, the game evolved. And uh, I think being, you know, one of the first athletes to come into the game, all of a sudden it was like, okay, now we're going to start getting some more athletes in this game. And they they got a lot. They got a lot. So when I made the AFL Hall of Fame, my, my title was, you know, the changing of the game. So We're down to 15 seconds. Keurig has the ball forward at the wing. Unloads long. It needs a mark. It's got a mark. What a fight. This afternoon, Anthony Kudafides has been the difference between these two clubs. But he's taken a timely mark, getting in front of ball on the siren. Carlton in a memorable victory. I want to ask you about 1999, Kud. You spoke about, you know, the uh, the excitement and the nerves and just the pure adulation of the 95 premiership. You guys played North Melbourne in the 99 grand final. You guys were, on, unfortunately, on the other end of the result. How did you deal with it? Like, obviously, you've, you've come in your first grand final on that high, and then obviously you haven't been able to achieve what you've wanted to achieve second time around. Was it hard to deal with? No, it wasn't as hard. Trent, like it hurt, don't get me wrong, but uh, I don't think we really deserved to be there. Essendon were the best team that year, and we came up against the unbeatables Essendon in the prelim final, and uh, they had thrashed us twice throughout that year. They beat us by over 40 points and then over 70 points in the second time we played them. And David Parkin described us as a B-grade team. And so they were the clear favourites uh, going into the prelim final. Their supporters were lining up for tickets. They got a little bit carried away. And what they didn't expect was what was the, what was about to unfold. And uh, I know John Elliott came into the rooms before the game and he was like, Kuda, I've got a funny feeling about today. He was just... The, the greatest president. He created this family environment that we all look forward to being part of this football club. He like portrayed us as if we were the greatest sporting club on the entire planet. But if you look within the club, our facilities weren't great, you know, but 
we just there was that perception of power and always ahead of the times, like just smart moves that they did and recruited well. And that's you know by him saying that before the game, and the rest of the board members were just phenomenal too. They embraced us also and encouraged us to get out there and just do our best. And we, mate, I'm walking off halftime prelim final thing. You know, I could be in another grand final. Didn't expect it. And then. Uh, you know, in the third quarter, Essendon kicked seven goals, seven, and uh, they, they were capable of playing like that for four quarters, and they got in front of us in the last quarter. You know, I got the runner came out to me two or three minutes in the last quarter and said, could you in the midfield? And we, we went a bit wild, and we just got out of line by one point. And so we walked into the grand final against North Melbourne. We weren't ready. I don't feel like they were a lot better than us, but they were more disciplined and ready. I think we had the same amount of scoring shots. They were just more efficient. They, you know, they were better and stronger. We just weren't quite ready. I don't think we deeply believed that we could could have won. And I started in defence that day. In hindsight, should have started straight in the middle and just put them under pressure a little bit that way. Maybe it just didn't quite work out like it did the week before. And so it hurts. Don't get me wrong. We hadn't beaten North Melbourne since 1995. And then we got them in the year 2000. Year 2000, we had a phenomenal year. We won 13 games in a row. And we just lost to the Bulldogs, who were the only team to beat Essendon that year. And we got Essendon round 20. In uh, it was 90 odd thousand people there that day, also for a home and away game. They were on top. We were second. And Jason Johnson came across my knee, and I did my posterior ligament, and so I, I couldn't play that game. And I missed the rest. And I missed the finals, and it was an absolute nightmare. The injuries started from that sort of point onwards, and. Uh, we couldn't quite get over the line. Melbourne got into the grand final and Melbourne we beat by 99 points throughout that year. Uh, we, were, we were clearly the second best team. Essendon were the best team, but we would never know whether we were capable of beating them in the final. I'm not saying we would have because they probably would have beaten us, but in that home and away game, I think we lost by 22 points. I got injured. I think even Brothers got injured that night. So we weren't far away, but I'm sure after what we did to Essendon in the prelim final 99, they probably would have just come out and gone mad, maybe. <laughs> and we'll never know. We'll never know, Trent. Hey, Kurita, before I uh, I get into a couple of really quick quick ones with you, I want to ask you just about the early 2000s. Um, we know the the much-documented, I guess, salary cap trouble that the Blues got into and you know the loss of draft picks um, you know, as part of the, the consequences from headquarters and so forth. How was it as being a player, you know, in those couple of years where, you know, I guess we saw probably some uncultural-like um, finishes on the ladder? Yeah, that was the hardest period of my, my career. The last five years when Elliot left and we got, you know, a new president, new coach, it was just turmoil and uh, it was completely different from what it was previous to that. And people go, oh, the salary cap and the two players that we missed out on, mate, that's why Carlton isn't where they are now, which I, I totally disagree. I mean... John Elliott had the salary cap under control. It was probably getting a little bit out of hand, no doubt about it. But like, you know, if I was going to be on the veterans list, only half of my salary goes into the uh, um, salary cap. But uh, Ian Collins didn't want that. He wanted it all out there and, you know, mate, everyone's going to take a pay cut. It was just the way he did it was just not right. And we talk about family environment, then it was the complete opposite after that. And so it was hard, Trent. I think it's a player that walked in when I was 14, you know, I played all the way till I was 34, but, you know, maybe I was 30 when this all happened, 31. It wasn't a great time. I mean, I was all about it at the end, in particular at the end of my career. I just wanted to play finals for you. I wanted the club to be the way that it was, and I just couldn't see anything. I couldn't see the light. It was in uh, – it was a lot of decisions that were silly decisions uh, that shouldn't have been made but were made, and everyone was, you know, just walked out, not a problem. You know, in hindsight – should we have kept Princess Park as a home ground? 
that's you know debatable trend. That's not for maybe me to discuss. You know, I can have my own opinion on it. But there was a lot of decisions that were made that shouldn't have been made, in my opinion. But anyway, they were. And so that was all down to the board members and uh, what they did at that football club, and it hasn't quite recovered. But they look incredible this year. So hopefully, uh, this year they can surprise a lot of teams. And uh, mate, who knows? Do the unbelievable. Um, anything's possible. Here they come, last ball of the dice time. Oh, to the 30s again. Remarkable. What a game he's played. Kudo, I've loved our chat, mate. Now, I've got a, with my guest, I just give him a last couple of quick questions, and these are just really short ones. So I'm going to give you uh, three people's names that you had involvement with at the Blues, and just share me one word to describe uh, these three individuals. So the first one's your great mate, Ange Christou. He's a character. David Parkin. Father figure. Craig Bradley. Um, maybe extraordinary. And the last one, Diesel Williams. The best. Who was your hardest opponent in your time uh, in the AFL? Richard, Matthew Richardson. <laughs> Can I ask you, which team did you love to beat the most? Collingwood. And the last one, your favourite memory? 95 grand final. Anthony Kudafidi, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could spend hours talking to you, mate, but time just doesn't permit us to do that. Thank you for joining me on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Trent. Tonight, a Hall of Famer, Anthony Kudafidi. Two hundred and seventy-eight games, two hundred and twenty-six goals. The premiership of ninety-five, twice the club best and fairest. He led the goal kicking in ninety-seven. He captained the club for three years. He won the Lee Matthews Trophy as the AFLPA's MVP in two thousand, and he was twice an All Australian. Cooter, not bad for a kid who had to defy his father to play Aussie rules. That's the end of episode thirty-one. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're on all the social media platforms, so drop us a line on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on any particular episode you've enjoyed or a guest you would love to hear. Next episode, we'll catch up with former Melbourne midfielder Stephen Tingay. Tough, it's rugged, it's good, solid AFL football.